Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Alexis Madrigal. For many of us, learning English as a second language is difficult. For one thing, English is chock full of words and phrases from other languages. It's a feature, not a bug. For another, the rules are notoriously inconsistent. And if you're a first-generation immigrant to the U.S., well, you won't always be greeted with the compassion and curiosity you're hoping for as you try to pick up not just the words, but the musicality and the culture here. Today, we talk with people who've done it about what it's like to learn English as a second language, especially as an adult. That's coming up right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Alexis Madrigal. English, the language, was a hodgepodge from the start. There's a wee bit of Celtic in the pot, lots of ancient Germanic, Latin, Old Norman, French, Arabic, Indigenous American, Spanish, Hindi, Japanese. You get the picture. Many first-generation immigrants to the U.S. have already studied some English as children. But learning to speak it day-to-day here in the U.S., is a whole other thing. What does it mean to be authentic with yourself and others when you're struggling to communicate with nuance? We'd love to hear your stories today, funny, poignant, bracing. We're here for it all, and we've got some wonderful people lined up for this conversation. We'll start this morning with Ching Ching Tan, communication studies lecturer at San Jose State University and author of a wonderful article you definitely have to read either after this program, if you haven't already, Here's What No One Told Me About Trying to Learn English as an Adult. Ching Ching, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to uh, ask people to, to, you know, summarize uh, a, an entire article, but, but how would you explain what you wrote about in Here's What No One Told Me About Trying to Learn English as an Adult? Okay, uh, I started with uh, frustrations about things I don't know, which is a daily basis <laughs> when I communicate in a language that is not my my own. Um, and then I, I actually wrote down um, the day uh, when the, the, the Foo Fighters drummer died, and I have no idea who uh, Taylor Hawkins was. And I, I, I felt like everybody around me knew but I was the only one who didn't know. 
So uh, that's pretty much the first line of my um, article. And so in this op-ed, I talked about you know how being an older adult uh, learning English, there are two levels of difficulty. You know, first, you know, learning a language uh, that is not my you know birth language at an older age. You know, biology wise is already difficult. Uh, but then my 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 op-ed mainly focus on you know the next level of learning is how do we actually uh, enter the mainstream conversation, which is extremely difficult for me. Uh, I gave examples about you know how I didn't know, like I said, and Taylor uh, Hawkins, and I didn't know Frank Sinatra was. Uh, that's actually reason, and I didn't know. Um, Sherlock Holmes was actually a character I knew all along, but I didn't match the, you know, the translation. So all this, um, I, you know, I don't think my experience is unique. You know, I, um, I know many people around me, they struggle the basic, you know, language uh, the learning, uh, that part of it, you know, not to mention, you know, how do you try to be part of the bigger uh, conversation? So, so that's uh, the energy I brought into this, this, uh, this article, I, I, I made some suggestions as well about, you know, how to learn well, better. Well, let's get into how, those. I, yeah. I should probably also mention that um, if if your uh, phone connection sounds a, a, a little uh, crunchy to, to listeners, that's because we're talking to you uh, from Italy. In fact, you're in Italy right now. Are, are you visiting family? Yes, my husband is Italian. So, I am surrounded by Italian language right here, which is like, oh, I have to switch my mind back to English. Let me just focus on that. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, apologize if, uh, if the sound is a little delayed. No worries. No worries. Let, let's talk about code switching. You clearly have to do a lot mm -hmm. of it, you know, uh, not just as, as a Chinese-American, but also as, as the uh, yeah. partner of uh, somebody who's uh, an Italian immigrant. Do you, do you have a, a, a nickname uh, that you use for either Americans with lead tongues or Italians with, with, uh, who are confused? Uh, you mean... Uh, uh... People, like, do, do you have uh, people call you Ching or, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Ching Ching is, is quite, um, it's actually my radio name when I was in China. Uh, so more people knew this name, Ching Ching, um, than my, uh, my legal name. Uh, <laughs> and then I used that. And then Ching Ching is also, you know, sounds very similar to Cheers in Italian. So I just embrace all that. Yeah, <laughs> just embrace it. I I love it. I love that you embrace you know here and and also in this uh, wonderful uh, column, you embrace your sound because your sound is who you are. And and I guess that's why it it feels so personal when when some people don't respond graciously. Oh wow, uh, it, it's just such a beautiful way to to put it. Embracing the sound, it, it hasn't been easy for me. You know, learning English. Uh, this journey to embrace the sound. I, I don't think it came naturally at the beginning of it. Uh, so I think at the first, I, I don't know how many years, at this long period of time, I approached learning English as uh, giving up my linguistic identity. I just wanted to, I'm an audio learner. I listen to NPR and that's uh, you know one of the approaches that I learned uh, English. So I needed to. I just needed to surround myself with the uh, with the language that I I can hear. Uh, I and I would like to express. So I 
I, I didn't do that. Like a, very much like people told me, oh, this is the way you should do it. It's very intuitively. I gave up listening to Chinese songs completely. That's how I did. Um, but, you know, ever since I became a writer and I started to realize, you know, I am also a communication um, studies lecturer. I, I teach communication. You know, communication is more than language. Uh, there's something something te- technical about the language, right? If you would say, I, I don't think this is, should be the way to put it, but, but you know, language is not only get across some information. A lot of time we use it to convey, to communicate very complicated emotions. So I think that only when we can embrace, you know, our cultural identity, uh, where we came from, can we truly communicate, you know, more freely with the world. Yeah, so that's the, the, the long process of it. Yeah. Well, Qingqing, thank you so much for sharing your, your story. Uh, you know, given, given that you're calling in from Italy, we're, we're going to let you go, but I do appreciate it, and uh, I urge listeners uh, to go check out the column. We've got a link at the website, which is uh, kqed.org slash forum. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're talking now with Dr. Vaidehi Ramanathan, Professor of uh, uh, Professor in the Department of Linguistics at UC Davis. Uh, Vai, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, I believe it or not, you're not the only uh, linguist <laughs> uh, I, I consider a, a friend. What exactly goes into the process of learning a language, especially as an adult? Oh. Uh, let's see, you know, the first thing that occurs to me, uh, and I, I was fascinated when I heard what Qingqing was saying about the difficulty she's had learning English as, as an adult. So the first thing that occurs to me is that within the field of linguistics, there is a, a, a term, a phrase that we call the critical language, the, the critical period hypothesis, which basically states that the human brain prior to puberty is most sponge-like, right? It is it is most absorbent of sounds that it comes across in, in the environment. So if a child prior to puberty is raised with two or more languages, chances are that child is going to be or sound native-like in both languages. Now, after puberty, um, the brain goes through what we call lateralizing, where it becomes, um, it becomes more difficult for a learner to gain native-like fluency over the language. It's not as if you cannot learn a second language, it's just that you may not be able to pass off as a second, uh, as, a, as a native language speaker, you know, native speaker of the language. So, but, you know, and that, that gets incrementally more difficult as you grow older. So if I were to um, start learning Korean now in my 50s, it would be more difficult, partly because um, you've, partly because of what I said, uh, uh, because of our brain um, sort of functioning, but partly because you are confronted with learning several components of the language at the same time. Um, Oftentimes when we're exposed to languages as children, we are exposed to really the sounds. We're exposed to speaking and we develop speaking fluency. And then over time, as if if you're, you know, uh, encouraged to learn the second language in school, then you're you're exposed to, to, you know, gaining literacy over that second language. But but as adults, you're often sort of, you're sort of confronted with learning the the grammar, learning the sound system, learning the vocabulary, and then you're expected then to perform it, 
right, to actually go out in the environment and, and speak it. And that can be very difficult and daunting. Somehow we, we develop a far greater self-consciousness as adults that we don't have as children. Somehow, you know, in the process of adulting, we lose that, uh, that spontaneity. I guess, too, you know, like, uh, as we heard from Ching Ching, it, it just like the older you are is uh, uh, when when you move to the U.S., the, the more likely you are to feel disoriented and disconnected right. uh, from the culture. It's, it's like there are all kinds of things you have to learn. You have to learn the musicality. You have to learn right. the social culture references. Uh, it, it, it's much more than just being able to, you know, uh, build up your vocabulary. That's exactly right. It's also that you become more and more aware of social judgments, language attitudes that get heaped on the variety of English that you end up speaking or what you sound like, right? So the, the more immersed you are in your culture or in the second culture that you find yourself in, you, you become aware of how the variety of English you speak gets judged by other people that the more non-standard someone sounds, the more um, dismissive the attitudes are. Now, this is, this is profoundly complicated in the field of sociolinguistics because if you think about it, people are judging you based on something as simple as sounds coming out of your mouth. There is, when you produce your second language, when you learn your second language after puberty, the phonology or the sound structure of your first language is going to creep into the sounds you make in your second language. There is no way around it. That's what we There's call no it. way around it. We are talking about the challenges of learning English as a second language, especially when you're an adult, with Dr. Vaidehi Ramanathan, professor in the Department of Linguistics at UC Davis, what about you, the listener? Are you an immigrant who learned English as an adult, or perhaps uh, there's somebody in your family who's learning right now? What resources have you uh, picked up to help you through the process? What frustrations have you experienced? We'd love to get your thoughts in this conversation. Call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. But whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Miro, and we're talking about what it's like to learn English as a second language, especially when you're an adult, with Dr. Vaidehi Ramanathan, linguistics professor at UC Davis, and also Majd Sara, doctoral candidate program director at the El Paso Community College Language Institute in where? El Paso, Texas. Sarah's also taught English as a second language or ESL courses for 15 years and learned English as a young adult. Uh, Maj, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, we, we've been talking so much about uh, well, accents, accents. Everybody, uh, everybody has an accent. There's no such thing as an accentless speech. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Syria where, you know, it's uh, commonly, uh, Arabic is the commonly spoken language. So as a young adult, I really wanted to learn English. And I was faced with uh, this idea that if you're not speaking English without an accent, you're not speaking English at all. And, uh, and as you know, Arabic has a really a heavy influence on the English language. And when Arabs normally speak English, uh, they carry with them a really heavy accent. And um, my I was really occupied trying to get rid of my Arabic accent as I was oh, learning no. English. So... Um, which I, I believe that I was able to do for the most part. But as I uh, went to school and went on and uh, became specialized in this field, I too come from a linguistics background. That was my master's. And right now I'm doing my PhD in ESL education and uh, in teacher education. Um, so uh, you, you get to this realization that this is really part of identity. And one of the, the things that are not discussed in um in our society um, is is what it means to have an accent and how it actually, uh, t it's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. And it, there's nothing to be ashamed of that. And uh, I, unfortunately, like many others, did not come to that realization until really later on. And, um, and accents was one of them uh, that I came across. And as now a, a mother of two, uh, little boys, I often see see them um, struggling to learn Arabic uh, as long as, as well as English. And one of I want to I want to add uh, to Dr. Uh, Ramanathan's uh, comment regarding uh, speak learning a language before puberty and the 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 package that it comes with and and not feeling ashamed of making mistakes. And I want to give him an, an example here, uh, just to kind of add on what she said. I have uh, my 10 year old, uh, when he was little, uh, the word namle means aunt. And uh, he would generalize, you know, how English you add S to make plural. So he would say namles, namles. And at a young age, you look at them and oh, the mistakes are so cute. And what they're doing is really uh, cute. But now on a daily basis, when I see my students who are ESL adults here on the borderland making mistakes, there's always this shaming that comes along with that. So, um, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see how much uh, the society actually plays a role in your ability to practice what you learned and to produce language and and to be comfortable using uh, what you what you've learned and making those mistakes because they're they're a part of the process and um, and and like it I takes said, a lot add, of courage it takes a lot of courage to make mistakes in front of other people who 
who may react by trying to sort of police you. You know, suddenly they're the grammar police. Absolutely. And how fascinating it is that when the kids make mistakes, you, you look at it as this is the cutest thing ever. Like when my son said namles instead of namlat, for example, in Arabic, which is the plural for ants, um, I thought of it as the cutest thing ever. <laughs> and you will see this across the board. You'll see this in every family, every language background, regardless of the mother tongue and the learned language. Beautifully put. Yeah, kids have so many unfair advantages. For one thing, they're adorable. But for another, they've got all this plasticity in the brain that, that helps uh, helps them pick up a lot of languages in a way that becomes much harder after you turn 12. Well, we've got some wonderful comments coming in, and I want to make sure to give voice to those. Uh, we'll hear now, uh, I'll, I'll read out uh, Mary's comments. Uh, she's 55 years in the U.S. and describes herself as still just okay. Okay at English. She says, I came to this country 55 years ago thinking that I knew English because I did so well in it at school. There was so much I did not understand. People spoke so quickly. They spoke in idioms I did not know the meaning of. I was 30 years old and had a three-year-old. It was so frustrating. My toddler and I were on the same level of English. Uh, you know, so she is, uh, her mother tongue, if you will, was Korean. And I'm wondering, Vi, if you can talk a little bit about the fact that, that you know, it's not the same. Depending on which language was your first language, uh, English may be easier or harder. Ah, that's a really good uh, question. Um, English, you know, I have to say, is, is what we would call, um, on, on, a, on a scale of languages, it is more inconsistent, if you will. Um, it's more unsystematic than, say, Spanish or German or even Hindi. Um, partly because, you know, there's several, there's several exceptions to rules, right? So when you have, for instance, um, take, for instance, the basic pronunciations, you take, you take a word like, you take words like S-E-W and N-E-W, and you don't pronounce them the same. You don't, I mean, S, you don't say, you say so and new. Right. Even though orthographically you might write them as, you know, with EW or you take uh, words like um, K-E-R-N-E-L, kernel and K-O, I mean, and, and C-O-L-O-N-E-L and kernel. Right. Which, we, which are written which in, in orthographically are represented very differently, but sound very similar. You take you take uh, sounds like, you know, the, the O-U cluster, for instance that we read as awe, as in thought, and sometimes we, we say it as o, as in drought, or uff, as in tough, or cough, um, oo, as in through. So the OU cluster then gets pronounced very differently, right? So that's that's just at the level of pronunciation. You take you take plural forms like the one Maj just mentioned, uh, we have we have um, plural plural. I mean, we pluralize using the s, but we also pluralize using you know uh, ves words that end with the f sound. We turn those into uh, the plural forms of ves, as the knives or lives or leaves. Right? <laughs> it's like and there are all these different landmines. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So depending on uh, this is just at the level of just you know pronunciation or pluralizing. But suppose, for instance, you so English also has a very particular word order, right? The it's it's basically what we would call an SVO language, where the subject comes first, the verb in the middle, and the object after the verb. But languages like Japanese, for instance, have the verb coming at the end. They, they are what we would call SOV languages. 
Um, and so if you are if your first language is an SOV language, then it, then you're going to have to not just deal with the syntax and the vocabulary, you're also going to have to work out a way in which you figure out that the verb in English comes in the middle of the sentence and not at the end. Well, the phones are lighting up, so let's go straight to the phones and talk yeah. first to Mrugan in San Jose. Yeah. Hi. Are you Hi, with us? This is Mrugan. Hi. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is a very fascinating subject, uh, a really interesting one. Uh, and I wanted to talk about my experience. I actually studied in English in India. I grew up there. Uh, so you would think that uh, when I moved to U.S. Uh, in my uh, mid-20s, it would be easier for me to pick up the language here. But there are so many nuances. There are so many references to pop culture and sports here that I had to go through another learning curve to get adjusted here. Uh, for example, you know, we talk about uh, slam dunk or terms like three strikes. Uh, those, those, you know, it, it takes a while to understand what they mean. Uh, and we have to do a lot of reading, watching television, uh, and a lot of listening to uh, pick up those terms and those phrases. Um, do you have uh, any funny stories to share where, where Mugen, where, you know, you're just uh, th thinking, okay, that doesn't make any sense. But now, afterwards, <laughs> you know, as the years have passed, you're like, oh, I see what was going on there, how, I, how you know, it was hard to pick it yeah, up. Yeah, so... One interesting joke that people talk about, you know, of, uh, about people who uh, speak uh, English in India and come here is, you know, in India, uh, eraser is actually called rubber. Uh, and, you know, uh, there is a joke about somebody going to FedEx and uh, Kinko's or Office, Office Depot and asking for rubber. Uh, and they're like, hey, you have to go to Farbury's store. So that, you know, and it has happened with somebody I know. Uh, so that, that's one of the famous jokes. <laughs> well, Hi. thank you so uh, much, Mugen. Um, and okay, just making sure, is this Vi or Amajtu speaking now? No, uh, this is me. It's Vi. <laughs> Vi. Yes. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, actually, th thank you for sharing that, Morgan. I, I grew up in India myself, and I know, I know what you mean. So just to give you an example of uh, something, colloquialisms, for instance, that I had not heard of. I remember almost 20 years into my marriage, I'm, I'm married to someone... Um, who's uh, someone here, uh, an American here, and he's from the South. And I remember 20 years into my marriage, he said something about, I call dibs on the pizza. And I'd never heard the phrase calling dibs on something. Hmm. And I, I mean, and, and it, it struck me then that it doesn't matter how long you've lived in a culture. Um, sometimes you'll run into little bits, turns of phrases that, that, are so, so deeply embedded in the geography of a place and the culture of a place that it will it'll come at you as a brand new piece of information. And I, I love those moments. They, and even now after, you know, I've lived here now 35 years and I, I once in a while will run into something that I hadn't heard before, but. Yeah, it's that. wonderful. I, I love colloquialisms myself. I can't even say it, but you know, <laughs> I was I was an English major, and I very very much like enjoy. Uh, 
I don't know. I th I think you know, like it, it's nice to hear the varieties. The same way you know, right. uh, you, you like to hear uh, iterations or covers of of you know classic musical songs. Uh, thank you again, Morgan. Let's let's go to another line now, Isabel in Fruitvale. Hi. Thanks for getting my call. Sure. So um, my experience was that I also. Um, immigrated to the U.S. when I was an older adult. I was around 25 years old and I immigrated from Brazil without any knowledge of the English language. So it, it was harder for me to learn um, in comparison to Spanish because I grew up speaking Spanish at home. When I lived in Brazil, my family immigrated from Bolivia to Brazil. So we spoke Spanish at home and I grew up learning Portuguese and Spanish at the same time. But for uh, the English language, it was much harder for me. Um, it's been, you know, more than a decade that I've been living here in the U.S., uh, trying to improve in, in as much as I can. But um, I didn't have, like, a, uh, a proper, let's say, Eng English education. So I just try to do my best. But uh, I learned basically just um, working with English speakers only, trying not to just get involved with people in my community and, you know, get used to only speaking my language. So that's how I try to learn a bit more. And then, you know, watching TV with captions, that helped me a lot. But, you know, not having that proper grammar, you know, base to learning English, sometimes you can tell. I mean, you can tell by my accent that's something I try to improve as well. But I do like it at the same time. So, I Isabel, did you by any chance take an, an ESL class when you came here, or or you, you just uh, played a lot of TV and tried to l listen to a lot of native speakers? I did do an ESL class for about six to eight months. Mm -hmm. It was very, very basic. Um, I won't say that I learned that much from it, um, but it was a good experience. It was the beginning of it, but... I think, I think the most of the English language that I, that I learned was on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Majda, uh, any thoughts on that? I, you know, I, I think what we're hearing is that not all ESL classes are created equal, but also that they can't really do more than just be a kind of introductory bounce into the process. Absolutely. ESL classes are a puzzle piece, but they're not all the pieces. Uh, to give a personal example, growing up, we had limited resources back home in Syria, and I uh, had to, to you know, use what I what was available to me. I had a, a really old, bulky computer <laughs> that I that I uh, was sitting in front of for hours and hours. And I'm a '90s girl, so uh, Backstreet Boys were my favorite. Uh, you know, singers to to listen to, and I remember I just like um, our caller right now. I too learned most of my English just on my own. I never attended any ESL classes myself. Um, I teach plenty of them right now, and I always give this advice to my students: exposure is a key in uh, the learning process. The more you immerse yourself in uh, the language, the faster you'll, you'll attain uh, and, and learn that language. Uh, it, exposure is definitely the key uh, to, to successful learning of any language, regardless of what that language is. And, and for me, like I said, I would put those lyrics up. Uh, I had a, a simple notebook and a pen, and I would write down all the vocabulary, do two columns, one column in English, one column in 
in Arabic, just go back and forth, memorizing new vocabulary, listen to it thousands of times until I got that pronunciation correctly of the words that were new to me. So uh, it really is possible to learn English without taking classes. Uh, it just depends on your motivation as well as um how much time and effort you're willing to put into it uh, and expose yourself and make meaningful connections to what you're listening to. Because I know for, for so long, people said, just turn on the TV and listen, you'll get it. I think it's a little bit more than just turn on the TV and you'll get it. I, I think there's some there should be some active learning taking place where you're actually taking notes, uh, memorizing, uh, practicing uh, they are all uh, components necessary to, to to learning a language. We're getting a lot of comments piling up, so let me try and read out a few of these. Uh, Birgit tweets, I believe that a lot of us immigrants did not learn English as a second language, but as a third or a fourth mm -hmm. or even after that. It seems a bit arrogant to assume that English should always be the obvious choice for learning a second language. Uh, another listener writes, in other parts of the world, it's common to pick up one or two languages, but in the U.S. less so. There's such a snobbery sometimes about people who don't speak English well coming from people who only speak one language. Uh, and there's a, a kind of theme you're going to hear here as I go to another listener comment. I moved to the U.S. from the U.K. 13 years ago, and I always get a lot of compliments on my ac accent. I always respond with, thank you, I love your accent, too. Right, <laughs> Most right. Americans will usually respond with, oh, I don't have an accent. So I tell them, sure you do. When I was growing up in the U.K., I watched a lot of U.S. movies and TV shows like Blossom, Beverly Hills 90210, etc. So when I was a kid, I thought all Americans were movie stars. It's fascinating to me that so many Americans believe only Europeans or people from other parts of the world have accents and how they don't appreciate their own beautiful American accents. Uh, Vi, you know, it, it does seem like we kind of layer... We layer our preconceptions, our prejudices on top of accents. Some are attractive, some are unattractive. That's right. That's right. So the, the couple of things that are coming up here, you know, there, there, are two, there are two ideologies that are constantly weaving in and out and that sort of entrap us speakers. One is what we often think of as the English only ideology, ah. which um, um, you know, just, I'm, I'm going to apologize here. Apparently, I, I missed that we're about to go into a break. So hold that thought. Uh, we will come right back to it after I mention that you are listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. We're talking about what it's like to learn English as a second language, especially when you're an adult and all the things, all the things. You can call and join the conversation at 866-733-6786. Uh, you know, ping us on Twitter, Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, but whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with Majd Sara, uh, who is a doctoral candidate and program coordinator at the El Paso Community College Language Institute in El Paso, Texas. He's taught a lot of ESL courses over the years. And Dr. Vaidehi Ramanathan, linguistics professor at UC Davis. Uh, Vi, when we left off, you were telling us about how an accent really tells you nothing about a person's intelligence or whether they're a good person. It's it's kind of like judging somebody's uh, eye color or nail polish color. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because what you're doing is basically heaping a whole bunch of social judgments on what are really just sounds out of someone's mouth. And if the speaker you're speaking to has learned the second language as an adult, the phonology or the sounds of that person's first language, like I said, is going to seep in right, into the second language. Now, but but what I was trying to get at um, was, the, was the fact that, in a sense, we speakers are, are constantly operating within and around and against two, two ideologies. They're not necessarily in conflict. That one is the English-only ideology, which basically assumes that the monolingual English speaker is the default. And from this particular vantage point, the immigrant's experience, um, the immigrant paradigm, so to speak, sees all of the immigrant's language resources as alien, as divisive, as contesting what we would call a more um, unified uh, sense of nationality. The other the other ideology is what we often think of in linguistics, or at least in sociolinguistics, as standard English, uh, as, as the standard English ideology, which basically position speakers of the same language in a social hierarchy so that someone who doesn't speak standard English or sounds non-standard or has regionalisms in his or her English gets, gets um, you know, either dismissed, gets rated as not being intelligent enough, gets, um, gets seen as not being competent. So speakers of African-American vernacular English, <clears throat> excuse me, or speakers of Spanglish, uh, I'm married to someone from the South, and you, you think of, you know, Southern English and the stereotypes we have of people who speak with strong Southern accents. Those are, those are social judgments we heap on, on people. Yeah, and and yeah. we are caught in that all the time. Both ideologies, the two ideologies are actually framing, in some sense, different populations. One is framing or revolves around the immigrant experience. The other is really targeting to some extent uh, or is more concerned with speakers of the same language. But we're still just constantly operating within um, and around those. All the around time. those. Well, I want to make sure to bring in another voice we have with sure, us sure. today, uh, John Seat, a member of the Leadership Committee for the Chinatown Volunteer Coalition in San Francisco. John, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. 
So I, I don't know how, how much of the conversation you've, you've been privy to, but I'm wondering if, if you can talk from, from your perch uh, about, you know, the kind of social stigma you see people in, in Chinatown suffering with, you know, have, having it heaped upon them by, by people here who don't understand, uh, you know, what they're going through. Yeah, thanks for asking that um, and being aware of that. So, you know, I'm one of the volunteers. We do uh, various kinds of community work. And, and in that, you know, we, we just see a lot of things. So I do find it interesting when we have visitors, tourists, or whoever it may be, who are, uh, you know, just talking to a store owner. And the city store owners um, are non-native English speaking. You know, so they know enough to get by. They know how to say the price. You know, they know what the items, names are. Uh, but beyond that, sometimes it might be difficult. And I've seen some, you know, uh, altercations or just arguments. And I've seen, uh, you know, potential customers or customers uh, belittling, you know, either the workers or the store owner just because of the fact that they might not be able to respond in the way that they expect a native English speaker to respond. Um, but they're in Chinatown. So I think that's a little odd uh, for them to carry <laughs> that with them. Although I, I guess it's fair to say that, you know, when when people uh, encounter immigrants with strong accents in, in other contexts, uh, it also b behooves us all to think about that and to have some sympathy for it. <laughs> and, right. and to accept that, you know, we come from a, a context that is specific to us, even though we're, we're here in the U.S. Everybody is coming from a particular context. Uh, was that you, Mash? Did I hear you uh, trying to break in there? I think Dr. Fred, but I do, I do have, I do have a small comment here. I think we often forget that the the sounds in a particular language are not the same in all the languages of the world. And to just give you a simple example, uh, in English you have the P sound like in Paul and the B sound like in boy. However, uh, in the al in the Arabic alphabet, the P sound does not exist. So for a lot of Arabic speakers who come to the United States, it's very hard to say, for example, park. So instead of, can I park here? They'll say, can I bark here? And, mm. and unfortunately, because of the way the society treats, um, you know, accents and pronunciations and judges those, there's a lot of moments when jokes are made out of these um, out of these instances. And uh, another example will be with... Um, the Korean language, uh, it's the, the difference between L, like in llama, and R, like in rabbit, are, are really foggy. So I often see uh, my Korean students really struggle with words that have these sounds. Um, and um, and it's I think we really need to get into uh, this understanding that not all the sounds uh, are, are there. Uh, not, not all the English sounds are there in, in other languages of the world. And having that in mind, I think we can raise some awareness and understanding of where these different uh, accents and pronunciations are coming from. Beautifully put. Uh, Carrie writes, uh, I'm the opposite, an American who learned French in college, then immigrated and worked in France for years. It's a very humbling experience that I wish more Americans would be exposed to, as it makes you much more empathetic and patient when someone speaks with an accent. Uh, back in San Francisco now for years, my ears pick up when I hear an accent. It makes me smile because it's a chance for me to learn more about the person. Let's go to the phones again and Jacqueline in Sacramento. Hi, Good Jacqueline. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate that you guys are um, bringing this topic up because, you know, it makes oh, you know, a lot of people aware of the difficulties 
Um, and anyway, I just, um, so thank you. Um, my contribution to this is that um, I started off, you know, I mean, I was born here in California, but my parents came from northern Mexico and, you know, they were, uh, they were um, older parents in their 40s. So, you know, they just felt very overwhelmed with English. And since we, you know, lived in L.A., there were newspapers and radio stations in Spanish. So they didn't, you know, there was a whole community that they did not really need to learn um, English. Um, so when I started school, um, I remember clearly my um, kindergarten teacher, she sounded like the grown-up in the Peanuts characters, you know, it was wah, 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 wah. And I knew instantly that everything needed to be with a yes, you know, because otherwise, you know, her stern look would make me afraid that I was not pleasing her. But, you know, it, in reality, now looking back, it was just that she was feeling overwhelmed with how do I do this? Because back in the 70s, there was no ESL program. You just, you know, got, you know, were put in the, in the midst of English and, you know, sink or swim. Um, and I did get um, suspended one time for speaking in Spanish in the really? courtyard, you know, counting my hopscotch. Yeah, counting hopscotch. You know, and I knew, I mean, I knew that in the classroom, no Spanish at all. But in the, you know, and in the schoolyard, I mean, I, you know, my mom was saying, you know, learn English as, as fast as you can. And, um, you know, I got suspended and my parents got called in and they said, no, there's only English, no Spanish. And, you know, I was counting, you know, hopscotch, you know, but, you know, one of the, the teachers that was supervising, you know, she heard it and, you know, reported me and there I was, second grader, getting suspended. And my mom was really irate about it. She was very polite to the principal and said, thank you very much. And when we got home, she said never a word in English at home, only Spanish. And, you know, do not speak in Spanish, you know, out, you know, when you're at school. And mm. I don't, you know. And now you're a Spanish teacher so, professionally. Exactly. Yes, I am. And, you know, and I, when I hear accents, you know, I've taught my, um, I have two boys. So I've taught him anybody with an ethnic accent, do not mess with them. They are so smart because, you know, obviously, you know, they, I mean, my my beginning in teaching, um, I was, you know, you know, I was a Spanish teacher, but they threw in two periods of ESL with no training at all. And my assistants were actually one was Ukrainian and one was Russian, which I did not know that there was an underlying thing. You know, this was back in the 90s, that there was an underlying thing that the Russians and Ukrainians had, you know, discomfort with one another, shall we say. And so, you know, when I found out that they were had been professors back in Ukraine and Russia, oh my gosh, I was feeling so awkward for teaching their kids, you know, English in my, you know, kindergarten basic, you know, manner, because I really had to develop the curriculum. And one thing that really frustrated me with the public system up here in Northern California was that when I would see that a child was ready to be put into the mainstream classes, um, they, you know, the ESL program director would get really annoyed at me and they finally took me away from there because I was taking students, you know, and they were ready, you know, um, but I was taking them away and then the budget was going to go down. And so, you know, when you have that, you know, money incentive thing, it can really, you know, mess up with kids being able to go into the mainstream and actually learn, you know, like I was teaching science, which was, you know, I was teaching it from, right. you know. Uh, uh, you know, Jacqueline, I mean, I'm, I'm going to stop you there just because there are a lot of people who want to get into this conversation. But but I would I would ask Maj just to comment, uh, you know, briefly on the fact that there, there aren't a lot of supports in school, uh, especially for, you know, uh, children K through 12. And, and I'm wondering if you think, you know, 
Is that okay, given that there are so many sort of technological assists these days on the internet with apps and such like Duolingo? Uh, or do we really, as a society, need to make a, a bigger priority of, of helping children transition into an English-speaking American context? I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the programs that are offered, like the dual programs versus the monolingual programs. And one key area is uh, that a lot of the decisions of putting a student in a particular program rather than the other are money-driven decisions, really, uh, just like our listener said. Um, my, when my child uh, wanted to go into uh he was attending elementary school. I wanted him to be in a, in, a, in a dual language program because as a linguist, I always value the addition of multiple languages, especially before puberty. So we were doing Arabic at home, Spanish and English at school. However, what I shortly became to learn is that here in El Paso, the connecting world, that's what they call the program here. Um, and that dual language program is really designed more to help Spanish speakers pick up English and scaffold them to, trans to transition into monolingual classrooms, not really for students who have no idea what Spanish is and to learn Spanish. So there's, there is for people who are coming from uh, countries other than uh, Spanish speaking countries, there's a lot of things that you don't know as parents until you are in the system and you're actually investigating those decisions that are made and, and getting involved in your school. So I would really uh, make a call for all the parents to be involved and, and, and question the decisions of putting their kids in one class other than the other, one program other than the other. Uh, it is important to know why these decisions are made and to, to be the, the, the basically the, the head of that it's your kid you need to be the decision maker right right, <laughs> like, right. you can't have others dictate where they need to be and how how they're going to be which language they're going to be taught um so that's that and also i, I want to just add one one more thing here about uh the idea of spain english only or spanish only i when i came to the, the borderland and uh, for the first time i heard about the, 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 the frowning upon Spanglish. Oh my gosh, if you speak English and Spanish in the same sentence, uh, you are like really frowned upon and there's this misconception about how horrible it is to mix languages. Back home in the Middle East, and uh, there's a completely different ideology about basic languages. Actually, it was very common to speak Arabic, English, and French all in one sentence to say, to mix all these three in one sentence. Uh, and that will uh, actually indicate that you are coming from a higher higher social, socioeconomical status. So the more languages you speak and combine, the, 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 the more you know, people look at you as, oh, this person, oh my gosh, they were very well educated and coming from a high socioeconomical status. When I came to the borderland, it was completely different. And I see my students always say, no Spanglish in the classroom. And I'm like, the, the the easiest analogy that I give students is, is when you are trying to learn another language. Imagine this is building a building. If you have the first floor, that's your Spanish. You're building, a, you're learning a second language as an adult. That's your second floor. Are you going to demolish the first floor in order to build the second floor? You can't do that. You're going to have to connect the two in order to move up. So, and and uh, I, I suppose it behooves the rest of us to, like you say, th think about, you know, who we're deciding 
you know, is is spiffy or not spiffy because they can speak more languages than we do. Uh, I, I want to make sure we get one last call in here. It's Mary from Palo Alto. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Um, I actually was born in Iran, and I came here when I was still in my last year of high school. But I immersed in an American family, and uh, it was amazing within the first few months in that environment how quickly I learned English uh, because I wasn't speaking my native language. And uh, the first time was when I started thinking in English, and then the second time was when I started to have my first dream in English. Mm. That gave me an indication that the transition is happening very nicely. So from my own experience, I just want to make a comment and observation. I think we are not doing a favor to the people who come to this country by providing them environments to speak their own native language. I think learning English is more of an international language that you can go anywhere and you get by that language. So I, I think we need to kind of like embrace our own culture in this country a little bit more. When I see my insurance company, for example, sends me their statement and a couple of pages with 17 different languages giving support, I think you're not doing a favor to these people who come here, including myself. We need to learn English. And I think you have to assume, and I assure you, everybody in their home environment, if they come from another company and they're still in their own environment, they speak their own language. So it is not preserving their own culture and language because that depends on them. The, the responsibility of people in this country is to make sure that they are immersed in this culture. And language is the number one. And, and I, when I go back to Iran, I will never use a word of English in my speaking because I think contrary to what your guest said, it's a more of a bragging to make yourself look better than the other ones. But it is not. I think the more of a respectful approach is to speak a language fully in that language rather than mixing the words. Because all well, you well do at Miriam, the end, I'm going to have to break you, break in here because we are coming to the close of the show. But but I, I do want to thank you for those thoughts. And I, I want to thank all of the people that we have been talking with today. Uh, you know, if only we had more time to have them all on for a greater length and more of a discussion. Uh, we have been talking uh, most recently today with John Seat, a member of the Leadership Committee for the Chinatown Volunteer Coalition. Dr. Vaidehi Ramanathan, professor in the Department of Linguistics at UC Davis, Majd Sara, an ESL instructor and program coordinator at the El Paso Community College Language Institute in El Paso, Texas. And uh, let's not forget Ching Ching Tan, uh, who we heard from at the top of this show. Uh, you know, just a wonderful, again, column that you should check out. Uh, it's on our website at uh, kqed.org slash forum. Uh, today's show was produced by Jennifer Eng. So you've been listening to Forum and think about that. <laughs> produced by Jennifer Eng, an intern who's just leaving us uh, after today. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.